Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. America is a wicked place. Its people do not fear God. They sin without fear. Some want to eliminate God altogether in this country. Prayer is no longer approved or allowed in schools. I remember a time in my lifetime where they had prayer on the public address system in public schools. Every morning. morning. That is correct. The nativity scene cannot appear in the front of City Hall. The Ten Commandments and the cross are being removed from public buildings. And that is only the beginning. Life in the United States is no longer sacred. If you eliminate God, then you don't believe man is made in the image of God, and therefore life becomes cheap. So Americans kill more than a million babies a year through abortion. Motorists kill each other over minor traffic infractions. Drive-by shootings are as common occurrence today in many of the major cities of the United States. Immorality is rampant. What is the birth rate among unwed teenagers and young people? Pornography is a multi-million dollar business. As a matter of fact, that subject is on the cover of Time Magazine's latest issue. Homosexuality, marriage, is now the law of the land. And that's only the beginning. More could be said about violence, including wife-beating, child abuse, stealing by robbers from within and employees, um, robbers from without and employees from within, lying, and on and on it goes. America is just full of covetousness and sin and wickedness. Materialism is the god of the American consumer. So you look at all of this, and if you know anything at all about the Bible and the Lord, you can't help but ask, why doesn't God judge America? It is so wicked. Why doesn't he do something? What prevents him from judging America right now? I heard years ago somebody sarcastically say if God didn't judge America, he would have to give an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's probably a little strong, but maybe that has a point, doesn't it? Well, what I want to do tonight is answer the question, why doesn't God judge America? Now, what prevents him from doing that? I think there are a lot of ramifications to this question. I've spoken on them off and on over the years. But there is one that very often gets ignored. It's in Genesis chapter 18. 
So will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 18, where we're going to discuss the judgment of God and glean from it some principles of how he goes about it. We've already looked at the first 15 verses, so we're going to begin in the middle of the chapter at verse 16. As you'll recall in the first part of this chapter, three men visited Abraham. One of them was the pre-incarnate Christ, and the other two were angels. What we're told in verse 16 is, Then the men arose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abram what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. I'm going to pause here. But we're going to look at the rest of the chapter as well as the verses I just read. Uh, I'm going to pause to point out that from verses 16 to 33, there are two things going on. I read you the first half, in which the Lord gives his intention of what he's about to do. He gives his intention concerning what he's going to do with Abraham, And he gives his intention with what he plans to do with Sodom. Then, beginning in verse 22, we have Abraham's reaction to that, which amounts to an intercessory prayer. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, I want to just go over the verses I just read. What did the Lord intend to do? Well, let's go back and pick it up at verse 16. The three men that had visited Abraham and had eaten with him arose, and they looked toward Sodom. And Abraham, as they were leaving, went with them to send them on their way. Now, other than what's written in this verse, we do not know a great deal else. However, there is a Jewish tradition that... They left Hebron, which is where they were, and they walked east toward the Dead Sea. And the tradition says that they walked about three miles, and at that point, uh, they stopped. We'll get to that in a minute. But the point is that apparently, from that point, they could see down the coast and see the city of Sodom. So, clearly, Sodom is what's in view, as verse 16 indicates. They could probably see it 
from where they were at the end of that walk. So, verse 17, the Lord says, as if he is in a soliloquy, he's perhaps saying it out loud to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? So the Lord is uh, acting the part of a human Theologians have a big technical word for that. They call it an anthropomorphism. He is uh, taking on the form of a human, and he's acting like a human might act and saying, you know, I'm about to do something to Sodom, and I wonder if I should hide it from Abraham. And he muses within himself. And he says in verse 18, Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And the idea is, shall I hide it from Abraham, seeing that he is going to become a great nation? Now, we've been told this repeatedly in the book of Genesis, that this is where God is headed with Abraham. So this is his intention for Abraham. I'm going to make a great nation out of him. And... Uh, the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in him. Now, that is a veiled reference to the fact that the Messiah is going to come through Abraham. So the Lord is saying, "Ah, should I tell 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 him? Should I hide it from him? Should I reveal it to him? What, what, What should I do? So he says in verse 19, For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Now, when he says, I have known him, he doesn't just mean I've met him. The word know can be used in several different ways, actually, in the Scripture. It can mean I met somebody, so I know him. Uh, And it can mean I really know him in the sense of having a deep, intimate relationship with him. And we use for that, perhaps, the word friendship. So he's not just saying, I have an acquaintance with Abraham. I know him. Uh, We are friends. As a matter of fact, The Bible calls Abraham the friend of God. Now, if you've been tracking me through the book of Genesis, you know, as I've mentioned before, that in John chapter 15, Jesus says, Before this, the disciples were servants. But a servant doesn't know what his master is going to do. From now on, I'm going to call you friends because a friend knows what his friend is going to do. So what's going on in these verses is the Lord is sort of pondering the situation and saying, should I tell him? Considering what I have planned for him? And besides, he's my friend. And friends know what friends are going to do. And I'm going to tell him as a friend. And the verse says, so that he can tell his children. And they can tell their descendants after him. So that, yeah, I think I'm going to tell him. Because after all, that's what I'm really after. I'm after righteousness and justice. As a matter of fact, he says that in the latter part of verse 19. I'm going to 
I'm going to tell him that he may command his children and the household after him, that is all the descendants after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. That's what I'm really after. I've chosen Abraham to bring righteousness and justice to the world. Now, what's the difference between righteousness and justice? They're very similar. It has been suggested that righteousness is conformity to the will of God and that justice is righteousness based on the will of God. I don't know how much of a distinction that is, except to say that we need to do what is right and just. That says it all. And so God says, you know, that's my plan for Abraham, and uh, that's my intent for him. So, yeah, I think I'm going to tell him what I'm about to do concerning Sodom. Given my intention for Abram, or Abraham at this point, that's going to determine me telling him what is my intention for Sodom. Now, before I go on, let me pause here for a minute. These verses teach us some interesting spiritual truths. Number one, God reveals his truth to his friends so that they, in turn, can share it with other people. So if you know the Lord and consider yourself having a relationship with the Lord so that you know some of his truth, God reveals his truth not just to believers, but to his friends, so that they can share that truth with other people. So that's one of the great truths in these verses. There's more. And that is, as we will see very clearly in a minute, God intends to judge sin. And his whole point is, should I tell him what I'm about to do to Sodom, which is judge Sodom. So the point then would be that God shares his truth with believers, and one of those great truths is his judgment. So he's about to uh, give Abraham an insight into what he's about to do. He's going to judge Sodom. All right, that's his intent for Abraham. His other intent is for Sodom. Look at verse 20. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. This is a very interesting uh, little comment. Uh, the wickedness of Sodom is so great that it's like crying out to me. So I'm going to go investigate. I'm going to go see if it's as bad as what I'm hearing up here in heaven. Obviously, again, taking on the position of a human being. I'm going to go see 
if this is what is really, really happening. And if it isn't, when I get done, I will know about it. One commentator's done a great job of explaining this crying out. He says this. Listen. Can't you hear those cries in your imagination? I think I hear the cry of a child, wretched, hurt, terrified, being beaten by a drunken father. There is another cry. It is the cry of an old man being assaulted by a gang of rough, rough street youths. I hear a painful cry as they beat him across the face and shoulders. There is the cry of the teenage girl being raped in an abandoned car. And there, the cry of a wife being abandoned by her husband. I hear the cry of a broken man so trapped by his dehumanizing welfare system that he's given up. I hear the cry of a, the sinful pleasures, uh, echoing cries of the thousands of bars and scars on the faces of our cities. The cries of prostitutes and those who patronize them. And the soft cries of the drug addicts. The arrogant cries of those who've been able to defeat their enemies or ruin their competitors. But wait. But wait. These cries are only a fraction of those millions of cries arising every minute of every day from every street and every city and village of our land. Cries that all are all heard by God and felt by God. Must God's judgment not fall on us too and quickly? How shall we escape? How shall we excuse ourselves when the only righteous God comes down to see if what we have done is as bad as the accusations that have reached him? Sin cries out to God for punishment, and God hears the cry. So, God is saying, if it's bad as I heard, I'll know. And the implication is, and I will judge. God judges sin. Well, that's not politically correct these days, is it? <laughs> that's not the most popular theme in the Bible. But God judges sin, and he judges it justly. God is a just God. Someone has said, was he not just in his dealing with Hagar in chapter 17 and Sarah in chapter 18? Was, has he not been gracious to Sodom thus far? They had witnessed the power of God when they saw the defeat of the kings of the east who had enslaved them in chapter 14. They had heard, no doubt, the testimony of Melchizedek and had seen how Abraham had honored God. Lot was a witness to Sodom, at least to some degree, according to 2 Peter chapter 2. God had been just in his dealings with Sodom, but Sodom had refused to hear. So his judgment on them would be just. God judges, and God's judgment is just. At this point, Abraham gets the message. He understands 
God's intent in judging Sodom. So his response is to start praying. And it's the type of prayer that we call intercession. Abraham decides he's going to intercede for Sodom, of all things. So let's pick up the story at verse 22. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. Now remember, the early part of this chapter tells us there were three men. All three left Hebron with Abraham. And now, at this point, according to tradition, three miles down the road, two of them went on their way. The third, who is the Lord, stays behind and talks to Abraham. So these two are now alone. That's what's going on. Very clearly, it says in verse 22, but Abraham stood before the Lord. So two have gone, and he and the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, are standing there. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now underline that in your thinking at least. That's a very interesting point. Talk about a shrewd negotiator. He says, Lord, uh, let's talk about this. Now, I know you want to judge the wicked, and they need to be judged, and you're righteous in judging them, and you'll judge them justly, but would you judge the righteous with them? Would, would that be fair? So he's just asking a question. Very shrewd, very interesting. He says, um, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose... There were 50 righteous people within the city. Would you also destroy the place and spare it if for 50 righteous people that were in it? Translated. Uh, Lord, let's talk about this. Let's suppose there were 50 righteous people in Sodom. Would you wipe out the whole place and destroy those 50 righteous with all those wicked? I mean, that wouldn't be fair, would it? We're going to negotiate. All right, verse 24, suppose there were 50 righteous, verse 25, far be it from me or from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Now you've got to underscore that verse. One of the most important verses in all of the book of Genesis. One of the most important verses in all of the Bible. I use it all the time when people start objecting to, they don't like the way God is doing things. And I say, there's a verse in the Bible that says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? There is coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God, and every tongue is going to be silenced, and everybody's going to say, wow, God was just in everything he did. So Abraham is appealing to the justice of God. 
I love it. So the Lord said, If I found in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I would spare all the place for their sake. You find me 50 people in Sodom, and I won't destroy the whole city. Wow. Well, in the population of Sodom, that's real easy. Let's go find 50 people. You think you could find 50 righteous people in Sodom? That might be difficult. So, verse 27, Abram answers and said, Indeed, now, I, who am but the dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to you. I'm not even worthy to talk to you, much less ask what I'm about to ask. But, now that we've established the principle that you wouldn't judge the righteous with the wicked. That's the principle. That's the truth. Could we negotiate the number? So he says, uh, suppose there were five less, uh, verse 28, uh, less than 50. Would you destroy the whole city for lack of five? I mean, if I could, if I, okay, suppose I can't find 50. Give me 45. I mean, you wouldn't wipe out the whole city if I could find 45, would you? I mean, just for lack of five people, you wouldn't wipe out those 45 righteous people, would you? Oh, is he a negotiator? And so, verse 28, he said, if you find 45, I will not destroy it. Verse 29. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there were only 40. I mean, I mean you're not going to destroy the whole city for just lack of 10. And we already agreed that you wouldn't do it for 50. So could we negotiate this down to 40? And so the Lord says in verse 29, I will not do it for the sake of 40. I will not destroy the city of Sodom if for the sake of 40 righteous people. Get me 40, and the whole city is spared. Verse 30. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. By the way, throughout this, if you'll pick it up as we go through this, Abraham is being very humble. He's very very meek. He's not, he's not coming at this uh, with an arrogant attitude at all. He comes, you know, I'm, I'm just dust and ashes. I'm nothing. And so he says, uh, you know, if, if, if you don't, if you don't, don't, don't be angry with me. But, but let's, uh, but let's, let, let's just, let's negotiate some more. Verse 30. Uh, if, you, if you won't be angry and let me speak, suppose 30 could be found. I, I, I mean, you, you said you would 50, so we've already established that you wouldn't do it for 50, so we're haggling over the number now. Could we get it down to 30? And verse 30 says, So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham keeps at it. Verse 31, Indeed now, I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 could be found. And the Lord says to him, Uh... All right, I'll not destroy it for the sake of 20. And Abraham keeps at it. And he says, all right, um, 
verse 32. Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak one more time. Suppose I found ten. Uh, if ten were found there, would you spare the city? And he says, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. Now Abraham stops there. Why? How did he come up with these numbers? Well, it has been suggested by more than one that he's talking about Lot and his family. That there was Lot and his wife, and he had children, two of whom were married, and it numbered 10. Well, how did he come up with the number 50? And some have suggested, well, if he knew there were 10 righteous in Sodom, there were five cities of the plains, remember? We saw that in an earlier chapter. Maybe he's saying, well, if we could find 10 in Sodom, maybe we could find 10 in the other four cities. And then he gets cold feet and says, well, I'm not sure I can find those other 40, so I'll settle for 10. Now, let me tell you, I have seen this kind of thing going on firsthand. Uh, I haven't been to Israel in a while, been a few years, but I will never forget being in Israel and shopping at shops. Um, and the first time I saw it, I just, I, I, I thought they were, you know, I, I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, you go into a shop and you find something that's $10. And, um, and the, the customer says, $10? Well, I can buy that thing down the street for 5 and the proprietor acts like he has had the insult of his life. He says, what? You think you can buy that thing for five? Why, you insult me even suggesting you could pay five dollars and get that same thing. I'll do it for nine. <laughs> and then the customer, acting like he's just been slapped in the face, says, nine dollars? You want to charge nine dollars? I'll give you six. <laughs> and they go back and forth like that. And so I walked into the shop, they said $10, and I shelled out $10, and they pulled me aside and said, Mike, you're insulting the guy. If you don't haggle with him, he, you know, he, don't, he doesn't respect you. So I learned to go in and say, $10? Are you crazy? They love it. They love it. So that's what's going on here. So the Lord says, I will spare it. For ten righteous people. Now, you remember earlier in the chapter what he said his intent was for Abraham? That he would, uh, God would give him his truth and he would share it with other people so that there might be righteousness and justice. That's what the Lord wants. So he's willing to spare Solomon if you can just find ten people. Now, I want to... There's more to the story, and we're going to look at it. But um, I want you to put your finger in Genesis 18. And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 11. We can talk about haggling with a merchant. But there's a great lesson here, and I don't want us to miss it. And it has to do with prayer. What Abraham did was just be persistent in prayer. So look at Luke chapter 11, verse 5. Jesus said to them, 
Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give it to you. It's bedtime. You ought to be in bed. I don't want to wake up my kids. And I say to you that though he will not rise and give him because of his friendship, yet because of his persistence, he will arise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. Be persistent in prayer. Are there things in your life you've been praying for and the Lord hasn't answered and you feel like, well, I'm not going to ask him for that again. He's obviously said no. Got anything like that? Don't give up. Don't give up. Just keep praying. He may keep saying no. I don't know. But there's a principle of prayer in the Bible of persistence. Just keep praying. While we're in Luke, flip forward to chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and look at verse 1. Then he spoke a parable to them, that men ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was a certain city, in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Give justice to me for my adversary, from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards he said within himself, Though I do not fear God to regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord is using that to prove what? Men ought always to pray and not lose heart. So if you don't get anything else out of what I'm teaching tonight, learn the lesson of persistence in prayer. Matter of fact, the passage back in Genesis 18 is the passage that taught George Mueller how to pray. George Mueller's probably got the greatest testimony of uh, being a prayer warrior of anybody in the history of the church, and his stories are legendary. He ran an orphanage, and Sometimes they didn't have food, and he'd pray, and the food would show up on the doorstep. Uh, incredible stories about George Mueller. And it's this passage in Genesis 18 that taught him to be persistent in prayer. Now, the other lesson here is the judgment of God. God is going to judge. But he doesn't want to judge the righteous as if they were among the wicked. Is it possible that Abraham could have uh, negotiated down to five or one? There is a verse in Jeremiah 5 that seems to suggest that he'd have saved it for one. Interesting. The point is that God is going to judge, and he will judge righteously. Now let's go back to the passage. Look at the last verse in chapter 18. 
So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham won. Now, I want to sum this up, and I want to make some observations. The sum of this passage is simply this. When God told Abraham that he was about to judge the wicked so that Abraham would teach God's ways to others, Abraham interceded with him to judge righteously and therefore not destroy the righteous but the wicked. That's the sum of what's going on here. It has to do with God. Will God judge the righteous with the wicked? So God will judge the wicked. The judge of all the earth will judge judge righteously and justly, and he will not judge the righteous as if they are wicked. Interesting chapter, isn't it? All right, let's talk about a couple of things. There, somebody has suggested this, this, this whole chapter, all the way going back to verse 1, illustrates the progression of Abraham's relationship with the Lord. So let me just outline that because I think it is uh, what is what normally happens with people as they develop a relationship with the Lord. Way back up in verse 1, God revealed himself to Abraham. That's how it all started. Then Abraham welcomed God's revelation and fellowship resulted. Now, that was what we dealt with last time. They sat down and ate together, uh, and they had fellowship. So as a result of that fellowship, uh, Abraham got further revelation and greater understanding of the will of God. So that's the way this works. When you're a friend of God, you do what he tells you to do in that relationship. He gives you more and more and more revelation. I think that may explain why some Christians don't know more than they do. It's not just because they don't read their Bible. That may explain why some preachers don't know more than they do. They aren't doing what they find and digging to find more. Then, having learned God's purpose to judge sinners, Abraham, Abraham responded by interceding for those under God's judgment. Then God has revealed the truth to him. He responds to that. God reveals more truth to him. And then he ends up being an intercessor. Interesting progression. I like it. Make another observation. God overlooks sin in the sense that he doesn't immediately, dramatically judge it, but he doesn't do that indefinitely. He will ultimately judge sin, but he'll be just in his judgment. So he will remove the righteous before he judges. That's a, you know, that, that has some interesting possibilities. Wonder if you could apply that to the tribulation. And he'll remove us before he judges the world? Interesting thought. Uh, 
There is that principle here anyway. But I want to wind this up by talking about why doesn't God judge America? Uh, would, would you say it's safe to say that America today is getting real close to what Sodom was like? At least San Francisco, right? And certain parts of Los Angeles? Is that safe to say? Well, if he would judge Sodom dramatically, then why doesn't he judge America? I think there are all kinds of answers that can be given to this. It's not the will of God that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God, according to Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, is patiently waiting for people to come to Christ. And that's part of the answer. But the answer in Genesis 18 is that believers are still here. Are we among the 50? Well, 10? <laughs> is it possible that on the one hand, God is giving America plenty of time to turn to him? That's 2 Peter chapter 3. And he doesn't quite judge America yet because we're here. Is that safe to say? I think there's some truth to that. Uh, frankly, the best thing we could do for America is to win people to Jesus Christ and teach them the Word of God. We're in the midst of a political mess, like the likes of which I've never seen in my lifetime. And there are people that honestly think if they could get one of those candidates elected, the one of their choice, they would somehow save America. Now, whether you are Democrat or Republican, don't kid yourself. The solution to America is not political. The solution to America is spiritual and moral. So the spiritual and moral situation in America is so bad. Scores and hundreds and thousands of organizations have been formed to try to stem the tide of unrighteousness in the land. Who knows how many organizations there are to fight abortion, abuse, alcoholism, addiction, AIDS, and that's just the first letter of the alphabet. <laughs> are we going to be saved by organizing, protesting, writing up a petition? And by the way, some of those things have their place. I'm not saying don't use them. I'm just saying, don't think that any one of those things is going to save us. Maybe what saves us is intercessory prayer. Maybe what saves us is winning people to Jesus Christ and teaching them the Word of God so that they know how to vote. But that's another issue. <laughs> but seriously, God doesn't, didn't judge Sodom because there were Ten righteous people. Unbelievable. 
I do not doubt that organizations are needed and are helpful. But if we manage to wipe out all the evil practices in America, it would still be ripe for judgment. If we wiped out the abortion issue and abuse and alcoholism and addiction, go down the alphabet if you wiped all of that out and they didn't know Jesus Christ, we would still have a problem. So, unless people come to faith in Jesus Christ and walk in the truth of the Word of God, we're ripe for judgment. You know, I really personally feel this in my bones. I honestly believe, and have felt this way for many, many years, that the finest thing I could do for America is teach people the Bible. Is that true? Yeah. And pray for those ministries that preach it. Is that true? Could it be that 10 people could save a city? And a handful of people, relatively speaking, could save the country? Maybe what we need to do, besides vote and politic and all that stuff, organize and all that stuff, is maybe we need to add to the list intercessory prayer. Pray that people come to know the Lord, that we have a revival of interest in the Word of God. So very simply, I want to leave you with this thought. The greatest thing a believer can do for America today is to win people to Jesus Christ and teach them the Word of God. I believe that, folks, down to my little toe. Father, thank you for giving us your Word and the privilege of giving it to others and the awesome privilege of praying for others. Father, thank you. We just pray it'll increase. Many will come to Christ. Many will grow in the knowledge of the Word of God and the grace of the Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.